My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, put it in context. Call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. What a difference 14 years makes. This morning, we learned that single-family home starts are at their highest level since September of 2006. And I am telling you that is good news for the U.S. economy, even as the Dow dipped 12 points today. S&P advanced 0.03%, and the Nasdaq, home of big tech, climbed 0.55%. 14 years ago, the same strong single-family home number spelled disaster because the housing boom was the root cause of the Great Recession. Though that was still a couple of years away. Hundreds of thousands of Americans borrowed money during that period using no-doc mortgages or took out home equity loans against the property to fix them up and flip them, actually even sometimes for the down payment. Yeah, everyone was in on the game. As the Federal Reserve raised interest rates again and again and again 17 times, throwing cold water on housing, we ended up with a huge number of unsold homes and then a crumbling mortgage market, which led to collapsing banks and the destruction of trillions of dollars in worth. The whole financial system was almost brought down by housing and the reckless way Wall Street decided to bet on it. We actually still haven't fully recovered from the crash psychologically. But 2021 is not 2006. The last time single-family home sales hit 1.67 million, we only had 298 million Americans in this country. Now we have 330 million. No wonder there's only a 2.3-month supply of available homes, the lowest I could find. No wonder housing prices are rising. There's barely any inventory. When I saw these numbers this morning, I immediately heard a slew of commentators wring their hands about how we've got another dangerous housing bubble, so the Fed needs to start tightening. When the Fed starts tightening, it's going to knock down stocks. Uh, we've got to shut down housing because it's too inflationary. Oh, my God. I mean, can anyone just say it's good? What a world. It's insane, people. We've got 6.7% unemployment, for heaven's sake. The economy is in zero danger of overheating. Believe it or not, today's huge home sales number was, was the first big number that I've seen that I was happy about. Certainly not unemployment. It's terrific news. Only 10% of the economy is actually in housing. But you know what? We say it bunch punches above its weight, meaning the pin action from housing is incredibly strong in this country. Now, with the pandemic still raging, think of the housing boom as a bridge that ties us over until we have herd immunity. Right now, we're vaccinating roughly one million people a day, a major improvement versus where we were a couple of weeks ago. But you know what? We actually need 2.5 million a day to really get somewhere. That's the number, magic number, 2.5. In the meantime, the brilliant scientist, Dr. Eric Topol, whom I follow on Twitter and have read his books, he's great, saying, why doesn't President Biden use the uh, Defense Production Act to make N95 masks so that we all get the best kind of protection while we wear masks? On top of that, we need enough home tests so that everyone can test themselves each morning, like I will be doing soon. With my care tests, that have, this has emergency uh, authorization from the FDA, so it's good. And you just get these, and you do it at home. You just swab, and, you know, a couple minutes later, you find out whether you have it or not. Um, but we haven't had the political will or the ability to beat back the interests that don't want us to have this. They don't want us to have this. They think that it's either not good enough or whatever. When we get these things... When we get them, when everybody gets them, I got to tell you, that is going to be the end 
of when we get sick and we go to the office, not testing ourselves every week to see whether we're sick. We want to find out before we go to work. Okay, admittedly, it's hard to open, but that's not so bad. Wait till you see next week when I try them. When I try them on the set, you're going to see how easy it is. But while we wait for the whole population to get vaccinated, where does that leave us? America's a service economy, people. In fact, two-thirds of our GDP comes from the service sector, including travel, leisure, entertainment, sports, dining out, carousing. Exactly the things you, can, you can't do until we beat COVID. I'm thrilled that we finally have a new federal policy on everything from masks to shots, and hopefully it's going to include these antigen tests at home. But we've been so hobbled by the previous lack of a federal response that it could be difficult to get things rolling, which means a huge chunk of the service sector stays on ice. But then there's the one bright spot that I like to talk about that other people are already saying is too overheated. I like talking about housing and the killjoys who instantly talked about how this great number must be dangerous simply don't know what they're talking about. A booming housing market is good for this economy, even if the last one ended horribly. Doesn't mean that this one has to end horribly. In fact, it could be great. What makes me so confident that 2021 is different from 2006? First, unlike 2006, right now, the consumer is incredibly solvent. I mean, the most they've ever been, frankly. Before the financial crisis, we would constantly lament the terrible balance sheet of most American households. Now it's the opposite. People are brimming with cash and rapidly paying down debt. It's actually a major reason why the bank's earnings weren't as good as we'd like. Second, I know we won't have a, a, repeal, uh, a repeat of the financial crisis because in the aftermath of the crash, the government set up new standards that make it much more difficult to, to get a mortgage. You can't just go in in there with no cash and no docs like in 2006. These days you need a sizable down payment and documentation or no dice. Ask me. I do a lot in the housing market. I can't just get a mortgage. It's in- it takes a long time even with DocuSign. Sure, there are some outliers, but overall we're personally close to having no loan demand because it's, so, it, it's too risky. The government doesn't want it. Plus, I'd argue that buying a home has become more of a necessity for the younger generation because they're tired of living with their parents. And they're fleeing the cities in droves thanks to COVID, and many of them are having families under the same roof. It's time to go, people. Yet even with all this demand, the price of housing is relatively reasonable. Last week, KB Homes, big home builder, gave you a price breakdown when they reported of, of the areas they sell into. Get these numbers because they're not outrageous. $344,000 for a house in Southwest, $312,000 in Central U.S., $283,000 in the Southeast, and $640,000 in the West Coast. But sure, California's expensive, but it's always been expensive. And prices are coming down rapidly in some places like San Francisco. That's not inflation. It's the status quo. Again, those numbers are big if you have no money. I know that. If you have no job, and I feel terrible. But when you look at those numbers, that is not inflation. Third, what else are people going to buy? Given the severe constraints imposed by COVID, where else can you spend your money? Fortunately for U.S. economy, there are two new forces at work, driving spending, remote work and remote schooling. We're now going into a hybrid mode for work. It's become optional whether you go in or not. However, not working is not an option. I don't know if you see it, but the people who sign on to the hybrid model are actually working more hours because they just can't clock out. That means people need to make room into off- rooms into offices. Many of the newer homes actually come with built-in offices because of this. But the older ones, they need to be remodeled, dream come true, Lowe's, Home Depot. Hence why these rally- retailers always rally when we get these good home build numbers. It's just, it's just, it, it's algorithmic. And it's incredible to me, but at one time, these projects would have been funded by home equity loans. Now people just pay cash, not even credit cards, cash. That's not inflationary. 
It gives the painter some work, though, which is how you get these nice runs in Sherwin Williams and PPG, although the number of PPG have to close nobody liked. But let's deal with that tomorrow. Now, people love the decking stocks. I told you about that, Azek. Wow, Azek is really good. Trek's all-time high. The latter, uh, Azek is furiously trying to hire people to meet demand. Then there are the retailers that help you furnish and decorate along with the device makers and video game plays and computer companies like Hewlett Packard and Dell and Apple. They're all benefiting from this fantastic housing number and from the hybrid work style. Finally, people are buying homes in the suburbs of the country. And when you do that, you need a car. And that's why CarMax is the third best performer this year. And GM's the number one performer in the stock market. I know it's not just EV. I see an auto boom coming. So do you. Good news for Ford, by the way, and the broader economy since cars put a huge number of people to work, home to cars to employment. The bottom line, there will come a day when we can go back to being a fun service economy again, but we are so not there yet. Think of the housing boom as the bridge that helps us get there. And unlike the modern day classic, this is not a bridge too far. Brandon in my home state in New Jersey. Brandon. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. How's your day been? You know, my day's been not bad. You know, I've just struggled over the pieces I had to write today. It took a long time. What's going on with you? Hey, Jim. So MGM over the past three months has been on a huge run, coming from $20 in late October, and now it is over $31. Incredible. I think it makes sense to have a recovery or a vaccine play because it thrives when everyone is out and about. So what's the chill man thinking? I like MGN. You know, look, my favorite has been PennNat. I make no bones about that. Some guy downgraded PennNat last week to a sell. That guy has been overrun by buyers. Look at that go. I don't think PennNat's done. Honestly, it's my favorite. It was my favorite at 20, my favorite at three. And at 107, I still like it more than MGM. John in New York. John. Hey, Jim. John from New York here. And uh, I hope you're staying positive while testing negatives. Well, that's what I'm trying to do in the meantime. And I'm looking for for pockets of goodness. I don't want to be one of them gloom mongers. That doesn't help anybody. I'm looking at best uh, bed, bath and beyond. Look at that thing. Must be short bus. What's going on? (laughs) Okay, I got a sector related stock specific question. And basically, the one thing that the Democrats and the Republicans seem to be able to agree on is that we need strong middle-class jobs throughout the country to, to get ourselves out of the debt that we're incurring and that we already have incurred. True. And basically that means stimulus. Uh, and not stimulus, excuse me, infrastructure yeah. within the stimulus package. Okay. Now, ever since the, the uh, three days prior to the president, the new president, and the administration mm-hmm. leading up to their uh, taking over. Right. And, and since they've taken over, specifically, uh, they have uh, re-said re that. They okay. said that, okay, and So what, what stock month, are you thinking about with this, John? What stock? Okay. So the sector is the th- uh, what I was referring to with the infrastructure is the steel stocks, the three major players, the right. Reliance the new core and the U.S. deal. Well, there's only one that you can buy, and that's Nucor, because we care about balance sheets, we care about business, we care about management, and Nucor's got the best of all those with a nice yield. So I say let's let's buy Nucor and leave the raggedy rest to the others, all right? On Mad Money tonight, after a summer of protests, police reform continues to pervade the national conversation as it should. 
With the new administration in Washington, I'm going to sit down with the CEO of Axon, yeah, the old taser, to talk technology's role in changing policing, and it's much more than taser now. Then as small businesses continue to struggle, I'm putting one big issue on the Biden administration's radar. I know you're watching. And could Democratic control of Congress light the fire under some cannabis plays? I'm sitting down with the CEO of cannabis tech company, Weed Maps. Boy, I'll tell you, the SPACs are coming. Out. We got a fit, we have an index at CNBC about SPACs, and I'm going to count down all 50 of them. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Another way to play the new political landscape, I say look at an old favorite of the show, Axon Enterprise. Well, you may have known it formerly as Taser, which makes non-lethal weapons and evidence capture technology for law enforcement, including body cameras and the software that processes all that video footage. Axon's run from around 100 before the election to 162 and changed today as investors bet the Biden administration will push for more police accountability. And the best way to do that is by putting everything on video. I think Axon's built an incredible business here, although I'm also wondering if the stock got ahead of itself and I've been a huge supporter. So let's take a closer look at Rick Smith, the founder and CEO of Axon Enterprise, to get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Smith, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. It's awesome to be here. Well, Rick, you just keep delivering, delivering. Now, I think we had you on what? When the stock was 16, I said, I didn't know that a company could be run this well and and that would have all these different implications, including a big software business and a flywheel. I'm looking now at annual recurring revenue. Rick, this is like a high-tech growth company, these numbers that you're putting out. We're pretty excited. And obviously, I've got a fantastic team of people who are helping me do it. But we've had a a long, you know, 15, 16 year run, you know, coming on your show and we intend to keep it going. OK, so, Rick, you got 44 percent uh, year over year. Uh, this is the annual recurring revenue. I'm wondering whether that you have to believe that might even be able to accelerate under the change we saw in Washington. You know, uh, police accountability is something that both sides of the political aisle agree on in general. And, um, you know, video is something that makes a huge difference. And we are in a great position to continue to help bring that tech to police, whether it's at the federal agencies, state and local. Uh, I'm also really excited about the military. Candidly, I think a Biden administration will take a different view of uh, the capabilities our men and women need when they're overseas and having non-lethal capabilities. Uh, you know, if, if you're my son in Afghanistan a few years ago, I want him to have more than just an M16. So there's just a ton of growth opportunities for us. Yeah, I am reading a, a, a book by uh, Bing West, who's been, I think, the best writer about both Afghanistan and Iraq. This one's called The Last Platoon. It's really excellent. It's his first novel about this era. And you just keep seeing over and over again that our soldiers don't want to kill people if they can, if they can possibly avoid it because they're all trying to build nations or they're trying to build community. I mean, to me, I don't know what has taken so long here, Rick. Why haven't they done it before? You know, big institutions do take time to change. And I would say, you know, the last few years, there was more focus on lethality. Uh, And I think we're getting into a world now where killing people is just not productive. Uh, It it foments, it is strategically against our interest, and it puts our men and women in no-win situations. So 
I'm really excited that I do think there will be a little uh, change of tone about the importance of having tools that don't kill that help us perform both our policing and our military needs. Uh, after your last call, I was conscious of the fact that the international expansion is uh, opportunities here are far bigger than I realized. You, you, they, most of these foreign countries haven't even discovered Taser. Yeah, there's 10 times more police outside of the United States than in the United States. And we see that is our, our probably our biggest single growth vector over the next five years. Now, when you think about the company from when we first started talking, I have to tell you, I am far more uh, enamored of as a business, your software, uh, the the, um, the the things that make it so that there's more accountability. And the reason I say that is because you kind of backed into it. Initially, I was suspicious because I said, now, come on, they're a taser company. You change the name. I said, no, they're a taser. But when I look at the mosaic, Rick, you really are an accountability company that produces tasers at this point. We have made the shift. Uh, I understand your skepticism now that I have the scars on my back. Going from a weapon company to an integrated software tech company was way harder than I thought it would be. Uh, But today we're running the largest government data set in the Azure cloud anywhere in the world. Well over 100 petabytes of police audio and video data, and it's growing exponentially. And now the challenge for us is how do we unlock all of the data that's hidden in those audio video files to make policing better, make communities safer, make policing more accountable. Like literally, there's not enough hours in the day for us to solve all the problems that we have the opportunity to go solve. But one of the things I I like why you're solving the problems is that 100% of your employees had some level of involvement in Sprint for Justice. This is important. A lot of times we hear about companies, the top guys writing checks. Sometimes we hear about discussions about this among employees. Your company is taking a radical action. Everyone's in on it. Yeah, this, the credit goes to my chief product officer, a guy named Jeff Cunnins, uh, who came over from Amazon, where he was running Alexa Entertainment, and we got him to come help us change policing. And after George Floyd, he called me and he said, you know, we have to do more than, than talk. And as much as all of our products touch on improving policing, uh, he had this idea. He said, what if we shut down the company for two weeks? Literally, everything grinds to a halt, and every employee gets to work on a prioritized list of products that would help with police accountability. And we did that, and in two weeks, we launched eight new services, all designed to help, for example, one of them that you would understand very quickly is we now can find which videos a supervisor should look at by queuing up videos that have racial epithets or swear words or a taser has been pulled from the holster or a gun. And so now instead of hoping you find that random video where you might have uh, some need for supervisory oversight, we can do it. Uh, for you and make sure the supervisors are looking at the videos that are the ones that are most likely to need some sort of, uh, you know, intervention. Now, I know we've got to run, but there was one uh, slide in all your great presentations and you're very open about it. But how many lives saved Taver, Taser? Just give me that number because it's so incredible. Over 220,000 people have been saved from potential death or serious injury. Well, there you go. I mean, I think you're doing so many things right, Rick, as I thought from the very beginning. It just gets better and better because you are a big think guy. And I got to tell you, Sprint for Justice, shutting down for two weeks. Maybe that's the thing I've learned the most today about why I like Rick Smith and Axon Enterprises. Great to see you again, sir. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. We're going to keep performing and uh, we'll keep coming back. I know you will. Rick Smith, founder and CEO of Axon Enterprises, AAXN. We backed him. There were many skeptics. He convinced us not to be skeptical and look where this stock has gone. And by the way, Sprint for Justice, two weeks off. 
Maybe that should be the norm. Let's help everybody. Man, money's back in. talk about a tough situation that I'm not been ignoring it, but I got to address right now. New president, right? Going to grapple with the damage done by the pandemic. President Biden, you need to know the stakes here. We know the human toll of COVID is immense, more than 400,000 dead, never minimizing that, not to mention millions who could have long-term health complications. But what we don't spend enough time covering is the ways that this virus has reshaped the economy for the worse. I'm not talking about industries that are temporarily on life support because people can't congregate or travel. No, not that. Most of that will bounce back after the vaccinations. No, I'm talking about the great untold story of the last 10 months, the small business apocalypse. COVID has created a not-so-brave new world where the biggest companies get bigger because they've got deep enough pockets to pay for all the extra technology that enterprises need to cope with the current environment. We've seen this in industry after industry, but especially the restaurants and the retailers. Think Chipotle, Starbucks, Darden, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, and Costco. They have the edge. See, the larger restaurants and retailers transform themselves during this period in order to thrive at a time when their customers are terrified of getting sick. They beefed up their digital platforms. They mastered delivery and takeout. They brought in new tech to get customers in and out of the store faster, called throughput. As a result, they've become more dominant than ever. Meanwhile, small business has been crushed by the virus. They don't have the money to make huge tech investments. And now they don't stand a chance against their larger competitors that have just distanced themselves during these 10 months. For the better part of a year, I've been telling you that the government needs to bail out these smaller operators or else we'll end up in a world where we only have a handful of huge retailers and restaurants. The stimulus packages help, but it's nowhere near enough to offset the damage. Listen to this. As of late November, 17% of restaurants, more than 110,000 establishments, have closed either long-term or permanently since the start of the pandemic. On average, these restaurants have been in business for 16 years. We're talking local institutions. Less than half their owners say they're likely to remain in the industry. And just for full disclosure, Bar San Miguel opened for seven years, profitable, had to close. I'm opening it back up, but it's because it's a hobby, people, and I know them. All right. There are too many people who are hurting to even conflate the two. Zooming out last month, a business networking site called Alignable published a survey of small business owners, also using data from the last week of November. They pulled more than 9,000 owners. You know, 48% of them said they wouldn't be able to generate enough revenue in the fourth quarter to stay in business. For small retailers, it was 50%. Holy cow, how are these people going to spend to keep up with a, a Home Depot or to keep up with an Olive Garden? They can't. Even when everybody's vaccinated, I don't even see how they can bounce back from this. Because while the little guys were struggling, the largest retailers and restaurants have built unassailable moats. It was almost like... It was, I know it's not a good thing for anyone, but boy, have they done well. Let's take them one by one so you'll hear how sad this is, even though I like the companies that are winning. I want to start with Chipotle, one of my absolute favorites. Stock that's up more than 260% from the March lows. Chipotle's always been good with tech, and in the last year, they've doubled down on digital while throwing money at takeout and delivery. In each of the last two quarters, the company's digital sales more than tripled. How many Mexican lunch places went under while Chipotle mastered drive through and delivery? And don't forget, a lot of these companies get very good deals with the delivery companies that a little company like mine could never get. 
Next up, how many coffee shops went under while Starbucks figured out throughput? This stock's rallied 109% from the March lows. Some of that's about China exposure, but th- there's more to it than that. Not long ago, Starbucks brought in a new CEO from Juniper Networks, Kevin Johnson, and he rolled out all sorts of new technology to fix the company's throughput problem, making it easier to keep that line moving. Plus, these big chains with deep pockets can strong-arm their landlords into giving them lower rent because the landlords are desperate for tenants who can actually pay. And I just want to make it very clear. People like Kevin Johnson and the people run Chipotle, they don't like this either. They're adamant. They love small retail. And it's not just for show. When you talk to them off the record, they are worried about this. They're worried about the small coffee shop, the small Mexican restaurant. How about Darden, parent of Olive Garden, up roughly 380% from the March bottom. Like Starbucks, they've been able to use the pandemic to negotiate down their rent. They also have the scale to get good deals from the big online delivery services. They spent a fortune on tech, and they can afford to upgrade the ventilation systems to make their locations safer, which is something you're going to need, believe me. Darden will be in an incredible position to capitalize on the carnage once we beat the pandemic. That's where you're going to eat Italian. How are smaller restaurants supposed to compete with any of that? I, I don't know. You got reason? Tell me. I, I haven't figured it out. Retail. Let's start with Target, up 112% from the lows. Why? Because they poured money into bulking up their omni-channel business, including the acquisition of Shipt, their same-day delivery service three years ago. We used this thing. Con- I live on Shipt. We did some just to get some mason mints and Swedish fish the other day. The executive producer, Regina Gilgan, whose birthday it is. Right. So it's her birthday. And she ordered Mason. She ordered, well, York peppermint patties and, and some Swedish fish shipped. You rock. But more important, Regina, happy birthday. Now, hey, you're welcome. You're welcome. Um, it, it, look, shipped has become essential. There's up more than 300 percent in the month of November. And December. If you haven't used shipped. Well, look, obviously, again, you take it costs money. I'm not trying to make it so that people are feeling that we're lording it over them. Target's digital operations not only saved their holiday season, they helped deliver 17% same-store sales growth. Congratulations to Brian Cornell. Then there's Walmart. Now, four years ago, they bought an online retailer, Jet.com, and made its CEO, Mark Lurie, the head of their e-commerce business. Now, Lurie's about to retire at the end of the month. I think it's a big loss, but Walmart's told me his work is done. Walmart now is an explosive digital business with e-commerce sales up 79% in the latest quarter when buying for action alerts. It acts terribly until it acts well. Next up, Home Depot and Lowe's. Now, Home Depot has spent fortunes making sure the contractors can get in and out of the stores quickly. Lots of demand for remodeling right now. The, the Despot's also gotten religion on e-commerce. Digital sales up 80% last year. Oh, and they just reacquired HG Supply, which is about to get a high-tech makeover that they can afford that local hardware stores can't. Meanwhile, Lowe's has made huge investments in technology uh, to the point where they're finally competitive with Home Depot in, in many different ways, which makes them an absolute nightmare for everyone else in the industry. Last quarter, Lowe's had 30% same store sales, 30 percent. And that's amazing. Digital sales more than doubling. Oh, Marvin Ellison doing an amazing job. Just rolled out a 15 billion dollar buyback. Finally, there's Costco. All right. Not that digital, uh, but it's getting more digital. But it is an example of how the big get bigger. See, Costco had something that no one even thought was going to ever be important. Wide aisles. Wide aisles made it safer because you can socially distance so easily. What smaller company could ever do that? What one-off retailer can ever have such wide aisles? They've been able to take share left and right. Plus, now they're doing their absolute best 
to blow out e-commerce. The numbers are staggering. I get a lot of stuff from e-commerce, from uh, Costco e-commerce. Stock's got it. Uh, it's, you know, by the way, this stock has come down a lot, like some of these others, like Walmart. And I, I think it's definitely a buy. Listen, I don't want to give these companies, uh, the fabulous companies, a hard time for trouncing their small competitors. Like I said, they are not just lip service. They actually wish all these guys were doing better. They're just not like what you think. When the pandemic hit, though, they knew what they had to do, and they had deep enough pockets to invest in necessary technology, and the smaller company couldn't. They had the scale and the mass to get through this period stronger than ever. The others are just the opposite. So what's changed? While the big boys always had scale, they didn't used to own throughput or takeout or delivery or e-commerce. Now they do, and small operators just can't compete because new patterns have been established. We always talk about digitization on this show, but it's worth remembering that all this tech is too expensive for many, if not most, small and medium-sized companies to embrace, especially in the middle of a pandemic. These last 10 months have been a seismic shift from the small to the large, and I just don't see, I can't see how the little guys can catch up anymore. The bottom line, as the stimulus checks roll out and PPP money starts flowing again, you need to understand that it's nowhere near enough to put small business on an even footing anymore. With their newfound digital advantage, the haves will keep growing and the have-nots will struggle to survive. Unfortunately, small operators won't magically be able to catch up once everybody's got the vaccine. There's no putting this genie back in the bottle. Progress just costs too much for them to beat the giants. Even if the product of the giants, at least in the case of restaurants, just can't beat homemade. Patrick in Tennessee. Patrick. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? Patrick, I don't know. I got to tell you, I don't know. I just did a piece that makes me worried about the small, medium-sized business. I don't know what's going to keep them in biz. Go ahead. What's up? What's up? Okay, so I called it before uh, about DoorDash uh, before the December 9th IPO. So I barely remember, I barely remember my original question, so I had to change it up a little bit. That's all right. So I got the share at about $167, and I've seen pretty good revenue growth in 2020. But it seems like the growth is done, which is concerning because I see more potential downside than upside. Well, look, here's the and, problem with DoorDash. It is $60 billion company. I don't know if that's right. That said, the momentum is there. Tony Zhu is doing a great job. And DoorDash and, and frankly, Uber, are, uh, Uber Eats are splitting up business when everyone wants delivery. So right now it's got the momentum. I don't like the size. I don't like the 60 billion. There is 26% short. I am waiting for the people at Wall Street Bets to go after the shorts there like they have and crush the shorts in GME. COVID has created a world where the biggest companies just get bitter. This piece just upsets me so much. Their digital advantage makes it much harder for smaller operators versus the big guys. And don't I know it with two restaurants and an inn. Much more man by the head. The electric vehicle comp- companies aren't the only ones getting in the SPAC craze. I'm sitting down with the CEO of Weed Maps to discuss the process of going public and the future of legalization of marijuana in the United States. Then you just went parable? Now what? I'm going to give you my take. It's going to surprise you. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. All right. This is hard to believe. But did you know that in the last three weeks alone, we've had as many special purpose acquisition company IPOs as we had in all of 2019? It's a lot to keep track of. By the way, the CNBC has you covered. Of course. 
We've launched the CNBC SPAC 50. CNBC SPAC 50. And you know we are going to be all over this in Mad Money because I want to make sure you don't miss the most important deals. Yeah, I got to tell you, I'm grateful for the list because I intend to hit every one of them. Which brings me to WM Holdings, the parent of Weed Maps, another one I know you're crazy about. Some people are calling it Yelp for the cannabis industry. I think it's that's too much business to consumer. I'm thinking they do much more business to business. They power the technology to help their cannabis clients scale. Last month, we learned that WM Holdings would come public via reverse merger with a SPAC called Silver Spike Acquisition, which trades under the symbol SSPK. But this company's been around a long time. This is not something that was just dreamed up. Stock. How about this one? Speculators slapped it up. Up more than 140% since the deal was announced, including 14% move today alone. At this point, frothy? I don't know. How can you not? But that doesn't mean it's done. Remember how growth generation was frothy at 16 and people laughed at me and then it just tripled? Let's dig deeper with Chris Beals. He's the CEO of WM Holding Company. Learn more about the WeMaps business and the reverse merger with Silver Spike. Mr. Beals, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so Chris, uh, I've never seen Weed Maps until I read about it as a SPAC and saw you on David Faber uh, interviewing you. I think a lot of people would like to hear what, not what we think Weed Maps is, but what it really does. So we're going to turn to you, first time guest. Tell us what you do and how you make your money. Yeah, so uh, it's a complex story, but really what we have is is two related pieces. So on one side, we're the largest. SaaS-enabled marketplace for cannabis goods, where we bring together the largest audience of monthly cannabis consumers. That's less than 10% of the population, we'd estimate, um, over 10 million monthly active users, with uh, the largest and most comprehensive set of brands and retailers. The thing that's notable is you could bring those two groups together, and very little would happen because there's a almost a complete lack of rich product information, clinical effect information, if you think of this as a pharmaceutical product. And that's where we come in, sort of uh, augmenting, cleansing the data we integrate from the retailer's point of sale systems, uh, things we do to normalize consumer feedback to give enough requisite information to make consumers comfortable exploring, discovering, and finding cannabis products that they want to consume. To power that, but also to to, to meet what is a a very large need in the industry, we also have a, a business in a box. Imagine sort of an operating system of software for retailers where they can run their entire sort of uh, demand aggregation, uh, growth kind of engine. That's things like uh, point of sale software, uh, online orders, uh, Shopify type e-com embed called WM Store, uh, our B1 analytics product. If they receive orders, WM Dispatch, which is where they can compliantly fulfill and do the fleet management that's required under the various state laws, uh, WMX, which is a wholesale exchange. So a whole suite of software that goes hand in hand with that marketplace and in some cases extends that marketplace. If you think about that, okay, that so uh, that. I'm a, uh, a state that just got legalized. I want to be mm-hmm. in the cannabis business. Do I start by calling weed maps and say, listen, install everything I need to get up? Or, or can I just kind of yeah. call Square and call some people that make uh, cannabis and say, what do you guys want and canvas the neighborhood? Uh, it, yeah. It, Is that what people are doing, one or the other? No. So one thing that's worth noting is, without exception, software that hasn't been custom built for the cannabis space can't be used in the cannabis space. So if you think about the POS segment, the POS landscape for the the cannabis space is both large, including the solutions we offer, but we integrate with most of the major third-party POS solutions to ingest the data that we use for the marketplace. 
But without exception, there is no Toast, Lightspeed, uh, Square, any of these other non-cannabis POSs because they simply couldn't compliantly be used within the industry. So for instance, each new state we launch our POS in, we generally have to get certification from the state track and trace system. Okay. Uh, and separately, what is considered a cannabis POS is goes far beyond what you consider to be a normal POS because you have to track where the product is, uh, who's touching it, who's receiving it, uh, a whole host of other things. And the same continues on. If you think about something like delivery, our WM dispatch solution, uh, Massachusetts until recently was going to require real-time body cam imagery okay. for deliveries. Several states require GPS tracks of where the delivery drivers go, historic retention. So really a lot of what we're solving is compliance through the software. And it's why, you know, non-cannabis solutions can't be used in the space. Okay, so but I want to be sure there's nothing magical here. If there's a great chocolate company grown in Oregon that also now makes edibles, that does not mean a thing for another person in another state where it's legal. There is no cross lines, correct? Uh, I can't. Right. And it's not like I suddenly can use credit at, uh, if I use good or we a, a cannabis store. It's still cash. And is it not better to keep the convoluted regulatory uh, set up in this country for WMH than if it were just like uh, another store where we wouldn't need you? Yeah, you know, I, I think the opportunity for us with broader federal legalization or some form of normalization is huge. So, for instance, we cannot offer credit card or payment rails. We can't uh, do take rates on transactions. We can't do anything that looks like a take rate. There are a whole host of things we can't do because of that landscape that we could do if something like federal legalization were to come. You know, that being said, though, a lot of the benefit and value we provide isn't just limited to the compliance piece. It's the fact that we have such a, a large and dominant set of eyeballs, whether that be consumers or businesses. But then it's, it's this data. It's the requisite data on what is the product. Uh, to, to put that another way, imagine how poor the transactability would be on GoodRx if it was a photo of a pill and a price. Right. That's the reality of cannabis most of the time. But for us doing a bunch of the data work that we do to try and make this complex pharmaceutical product approachable for the average consumer. Okay. I mean, I think it is just a, look, you have a difficult business model if you're not in the business, but that doesn't mean it's not the perfect business model if you are in it. I want to thank Chris Beals, the CEO of WM Holding Company, for coming on Mad Money. Good to see you. Thank you. We're all looking for ways to be involved with cannabis. This is a very, I think, legitimate business way to profit from it, which is a lot better sometimes than selling cannabis. Chris Beal, CEO of WM Holding Company, stocks up huge. You know, I don't encourage buying after that. But I like the fact that they are pick and shovels for the actual gold miners. And that's always been a way to make money. Mad Money's back at Uber. It is time. It's time to and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski dead. I'm the lightning round. Let's start with, uh, how about Logan in California? Logan. I got it. Yo. I see that. Hello. Uh, you're on. You're on with Jim. What do you got? Hey, Jim. Clover Health. It's a C-L-O-V. That kid's got horse sense. I'm going to send you from Clover Health right over to Centene because we like Michael Nidor. Very similar business. Let's go to uh, Frank in Ohio. Frank. Hey, Jim. Booyah. This is Frank from Ohio. I got a question about uh, NIO. Yeah, Chinese electric vehicles. But you know what? I am in the Tesla camp, and I'm not going. 
Let's go to Gene in, oh, where my daughter used to live, Oregon. Gene. Mr. Kramer, this is mean Uncle Gene in Medford, Oregon. It's an honor to talk to you. Oh, man. Well, you know, my daughter lives in Ashland. Always good to talk to someone right from the, around the corner. What's going on? The stock I wanted to ask your opinion on is, is BioNanoGenomics. We got to get this company on. I mean, this thing is just up like a spike, and I happen to love all these speculative biotechs, but I, it's up so much. I got to do more work. I'm going to Eli in California, please. Eli. Big booyah, Jim Kramer. Wow. Yes. Just wanted to say thanks uh, to you and your staff for all the hard work you guys do. Oh, our staff is unbelievable. Day, it's Regina Gilgan's birthday. I pointed that out multiple times. Good to see you. Yes. What's going on? I just want to get your thoughts on a company that, despite reporting what I thought was relatively good numbers last quarter and the CEO's strong efforts to ease investors' concerns about a competitor uh, taking market share, the stock has not yet recovered or performed better than what it's currently trading at. Jim, what, is, what are your thoughts on uh, GoodRx? And, uh, I think Doug Hurst is terrific. That stock got hit by an Amazon, basically a press release. I think that he's going to have a great quarter. I like it very much. And that, ladies and gentlemen, inclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. You just won the $731 million jackpot. You're the Powerball king. All right, maybe not you specifically, but someone in Maryland just won. So what do you do with that kind of massive windfall? Speaking of someone who's actually done this kind of thing before, some planning, I've got some advice for the Powerball king or anyone else who's sitting on a gigantic pile of change. First rule of managing money when you're wealthy, you only need to get rich once. Now, people are going to come to you with schemes, long-lost relatives, great ideas, unknown ingratiators. They want to break into your bank account. Believe me, the con artists are never going to stop, and they're going to get you. It's brutal, especially the long-term cons. So once you've made your fortune, don't give people loans. In fact, don't invest in anything that has any risk for the vast majority of your newfound fortune. Who needs risk when you're already rich? Second, in the case of Powerball, you've had a chance of, take, of taking $731 million as an annuity or a smaller lump sum. Always take the lump sum. You can stick it in treasury bonds, and the interest you will accrue will make you more than if you gotten it if you, if you took the annuity. Plus, the top marginal tax rate is as low as it's been in decades, thanks to President Trump's tax reform package. Better to pay the taxes now, because that rate's only going to go up from here. Third, when you're super rich like this, your main worry is not the taxman. You've got to be worried about inflation, specifically hyperinflation. That's the only thing that can really threaten the nine-digit fortune. If you're managing a normal portfolio, I wouldn't actually think that much about inflation. Now, we've had persistently low inflation since the early 90s. It's just not a serious concern. But if you're already rich, you have to worry about inflation the same way Superman worries about kryptonite, because it's the only thing that can really wipe you out. And given how way we're spending like drunken, drunken sailors in this country, it may be an issue. So what holds value during periods of hyperinflation? You may not know this, but it's precious metals, real estate, and great art. Yes, masterworks. If I won the lottery, I would actually hit up a place like Sotheby's and grab a Picasso, a Cezanne, maybe a Rothko. Can't go wrong with Van Gogh if you can find one. Jackson Pollock's fine. I can even accept the Barnett Newman. Speaking of someone who used to own an art gallery, which is a terrible business, check out the comps and don't overpay. Mainly, though, you need to go to an auction house. 
As for real estate, speaking of an auction house, Sotheby's has some terrific-looking places I checked out for you today in St. Michael's, nice place on the water, and Potomac, Maryland. And that is where, near where the winter lives. This St. Michael's place, it's an 1867 manse. Beautiful. Nine acres, 12 million. Sound insane? Not if you just went Powerball. But you know what? You should really be looking at vast tracts of land, like this 4,500-acre place I found for you in Scottsville, Virginia. 75 million bucks. Who needs that much land? Nobody. But the point is, they're buying insurance against hyperinflation. Got to invest your money in assets, not keep it all in cash. As for gold, yes, 5% jackpot into bullion. Don't store the bullion at home. Put it in safety deposit boxes at different banks. Nothing wrong with sending some overseas. And you know what? If you won the lottery, go ahead. Yes, I'm going to say it, 5% in Bitcoin. Don't buy it all at once. Crypto could be incredibly volatile. Don't buy it on the weekend, but it's an important new storeholder value. Finally, only then... Where I put the bulk of money into a financial instrument that you've heard of, and that's going to be short-term Maryland municipal bonds. Best to be in a fund. Maryland has a AAA rating, and a bond rates are so low that you've got to stay away from anything that's long-term. Got to be able to keep that quo. If things rates spike, you've got to be ready. Only then, after you've invested most of your assets in all these different things, would I even think about owning some stocks? Yeah. And then I'd probably just do it for fun. When you're already rich, don't put more than 20% of your assets into the market, and that should largely be in index funds. And it, look, I'll give you some dividend aristocrats. Abbott Labs, Walmart, PepsiCo, Hormel, Procter & Gamble, Clorox, Illinois Toolworks, Emerson Elect, Abdi. Let's finish off with a local Maryland company, McCormick. Again, you only need to get rich once, person. Once you win the Powerball jackpot, you never need to take another financial risk again. So, so please don't. No need to hit the jackpot a second time. In fact, if I had to curtail exposure to any one of these asset classes, it would be this one. That's the one. Yes, they're too risky for you. I don't want you worrying about something like stocks. And I love stocks, or I wouldn't be doing the show. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. Now. 